This is an audio recording of the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. The show is streamed live on Lendit TV, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Lendit News team and a special guest discuss the most important fintech news stories of the past week. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Lendit Fintech Lendit Fintech's weekly news roundup. My name is Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lendit Fintech, and I'm joined today, as always, by Todd Anderson. How are you doing, Todd? I am good, Peter. How are you? Doing great. And our special guest today, uh, Kabir Kumar from uh, Flourish. How are you doing, Kabir? Doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Yeah, good to have you back. Yes, indeed. Well, like most weeks, we have a lot to uh, to get through today, so let's just jump right into it. Want to start off with um, the SEC, and this this actually came out late last week. I think it was Friday afternoon, um, and uh, wanted to touch on it because it, it it's it is you know in some ways it's not news at all, in some ways it's big news that because we Van Eck, I'm talking about Van Eck, the ETF. That they um, they they put the Bit- Bitcoin ETF. This was um, not a futures ETF, but actually holding Bitcoin. Rejected once again by the SEC, and uh, it wasn't wasn't super surprising. I think people were hoping that maybe the fact that they approved a Bitcoin futures meant that they were getting closer. But they're still worried about fraud. They still say that there's price you know price manipulation uh, potential, and so where. You know, we're back um, back to square one in some ways, although there's many others, it's seen many other Bitcoin ETFs that are that are still uh, in the works and before the SEC, and I'm sure Van Eck will probably go again. They've, 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 they've been rejected multiple times and I'll probably go again. But uh, anyway, any any thoughts, guys? I, mean, I, I, th- I think we talked about it a little bit at the time when they approved the futures one. I thought... That's that's set back the spot ETF uh, by you know months if not a year because they said all right basically they'll they'll let them um, you know work with the futures ETF for a time being and um, see how that works out to really collect data to to better understand uh, Bitcoin though I think it's all a facade I think it's you know they they are um, going with the mantra of um, you know, being ad- adversarial to crypto at the moment. Uh, and I think it's very, very, um, you know, unfortunate because, you know, the, the one thing the crypto market needs is clarity on how they can operate. And it just, they're continuing to drop them into the bucket of in limbo. All right, we'll give you a futures ETF, but a spot ETF, not yet. We'll give you this over here, but this over here, not yet. And so it just leaves them in this strange limbo and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard for the industry to really take that huge step forward until they get true clarity. Yep. You know, I think that if you look at it from the regulators, dare I say, from the regulators perspective or the SEC's (laughs) perspective, I mean, it is ultimately why you're okay with futures, not okay with spot is because about, it's about consumer protection, right? It's, it's harder to get comfortable that consumers won't face direct risks from the spot ETFs. Just mm-hmm. it's harder, 
Mm-hmm. And then, so I think that's the fundamental issue. And I don't think there's a good answer for that. So I, I, I think it's going to take a while. It's going to be over a year at least before yep. we get comfortable with those spot ETFs. And I feel this is the biggest story, right? The biggest story here is how do we regulate this space? I actually think we, we, we might even need sort of a completely new structure, you know, some interagency regulatory group or supervisory group something just that doesn't exist now right. for this needle to move forward. Um, but I think it's consumer protection that's yeah. really at the heart of this. Yeah, and that's, that's what Coinbase has actually put forward, that, that, that they want some sort of new structure. And you, know, you, you, you go to the Twitterverse, and, of course, they say, yes, they, they, are, they, they first rejected a, a Bitcoin ETF back in 2013. And if they had accepted it, consumers would have <laughs> the, the protection that they gave consumers as cost for consumers a great deal. But obviously, they weren't. You know, the SEC is uh, is still is going to move slowly here. And as you say, it could be it could be some time. But anyway, let's move on. N twenty six. Just this is this just came out today. Uh, we've you know we we knew that they were um, looking at uh, you know closing down the uh, the US operation they they've 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 been there's been sort of little bits and pieces that have come out about this over the last month but today it's official shutting it down January uh, they're closing down for all 500,000 accounts are going to be shut down uh, all the employees are going to be either deployed elsewhere or let go and so and 26 who started with such promise back in uh, you know, they launched I think in 2019 and they've been they'd been in the yeah, we've had them speak at our event multiple times, even yep. before that. They they've been they've been in the U.S. for for many years, and they've decided it's just too hard. I mean, they they acquired, I think it said in one of the stories, um, two, three, four hundred thousand users relatively quickly. Yeah, well, five hundred thousand um, total is what they're yeah, saying. They they so, up, but yeah, but um, you know, it just the U.S. is a really really tough. Uh, market to crack, um, you know, N26 also left the UK. Um, and so they've, yep. they've, you know, while they recently raised the round, they, they did say in that round that, you know, they're putting all their focus into Europe. Uh, though they still have a, um, you know, I think an application for a banking license or something in Brazil. So that's, that's, I guess, one thing to watch for. But, um, you know, we haven't seen Revolut take off in the US either. Uh, and so, you know, the US is made up of, 10 plus thousand banks, credit unions, uh, financial services, uh, companies that service consumers or small businesses. I mean, that's a, that's a heavy market to jump into, uh, depending on your size, you can get a lot of, um, interchange revenue. You can get a lot less if you're significantly larger, but, um, you know, the one thing I think N26 and Revolut suffer from is that there's no real like hook into, why they're so much different than maybe a chime or you know a, a wealth front or or one of these other firms that's already had uh, their story here in the U.S. Um, and have acquired customers and are U.S. based. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier. There's definitely a specific to N26 story here, right? They are under yep, some scrutiny too. from regulators. They had challenges uh, during the pandemic, had to let go percentage of their staff, et cetera. They're specific to N26 stories. But to your point, Todd, there's sort of a broader implications for what does it mean for the European challenger banks and their ability to survive in the U.S. context. And 
I definitely think that the way they originate in the U.S., right, the way they uh, in, in in the European context, the way they get started is very different than here. And so I think structurally, you are you are facing caps in the European context. You're not thinking that it's a prepaid-led model. Model, it's a transaction-led model. You're thinking earlier about credit. That's not the reality here. And then on top of that, I think the digital banking space, by the time you get they got, came in here and got started, got a lot more sophisticated, got a lot more variegated, with Varo, Chime, Marcus, uh, you know, al- allies of the world going digital and mobile first. It just got a lot more complex for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I also think the the other part of it. And I was reading this, I think, two days ago, maybe in the Financial Times. The European brick and mortar type banks that came here have suffered almost a similar fate. <laughs> they've they've sell they've sold off their U.S. based assets. I think there's in um, Bank of the West. Uh, I think is associated with one of the European banks is now yeah. up for sale as well. And so it's not just the digital banks. There's European the traditional lenders have have also, also not. Stuff. Been able to have staying power in the U.S. market. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about BBVA of the Bank of the West and HSBC. Yep. HSBC have uh, divested many of their branches. Um, so let's move on, though. Um, I want to talk about upgrade. Um, we had, we saw they they raised a big Series E back in June. We thought, you know, no one can raise money like Renault Laplanche, and uh, little do we know that just four or five months later. He's got a $280 million Series F, and um, that's basically jumped the valuation from like $3.5 billion to, um, what is it now, $6.3 billion. And, you know, they said, like in the article, it says that, you know, the revenue climbed 70%. In this, in like month, like monthly revenue has climbed seventy percent. The valuations climbed eighty three percent. So you know it's not that not not that far off. The upgrade card, which is they really their core product now. I mean they they started off with just consumer installment loans, where they really focus on their card, the fastest growing credit card in the country apparently. Um, so you know Renault Laplanche continues to execute well. Absolutely. I mean I think the. What's exciting about Upgrade is that it's targeted. I think this is a cross-river bank partnership, if I'm not mistaken. I think they built the product on cross-river. Yep. And they've targeted you know, the sort of fair to uh, challenge credit score customers. Mm-hmm. I think 680 and below FICO, something like that, and up to 50K. So that is a huge market. That's a hungry market that has not been well-served with sort of fast moving, you know, smart decisioning credit product. So there was a market for the taking in a way. And, and in fact, you had a lot of uh, really bad credit, right, being delivered in that market. So I think in that sense, it's more a reflection of also just finding the right market niche. I'm not saying it's not an execution story, but it's also this the market opportunity story for sure. Um, my The big question I have is, you know, and this is a broader reflection of, of what's going on in the BNPL space, right? This is in part a subset of that. Is how, you know th- these guys are not reporting to the credit bureaus, as far as I know. And then when when stuff does get reported to the credit bureaus, is in a very different way because each time you have an installment product, it's a separate lending account right. that's getting reported. So I think that's a bigger structural issue. Uh, 
And there were a number of really interesting pieces, I think, in the last couple of weeks saying, you know, now that the market is so massive, we need to structurally relook at how we report to the bureaus, because I think that could end up being really unfair for consumers. But exciting story, I think, in terms of the credit space on the whole. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the BMPL angle, there, there needs to be uniformity in how they report um, and what they report. Well, some don't um, even report. Yeah, yeah some, so that, some, so don't, some don't report. Yeah, exactly. Some report only bad or missed payment. So they're not giving you credit for you know 50 that you've made, but then you've missed one or two. And so the it tips the balance negatively. Uh, pretty quickly but i think you know back to renault i think the one thing that he's always been exceptionally good at is the products are always pretty simple mm -hmm. even the upgrade card it's it's very simple there's not a ton of um you know this jargon that goes along with how the rate is and everything's usually pretty straightforward you get here's a product here's the the rate here's your fee <laughs> done like it's it's very much straightforward there's not all this tiny text that goes along with the upgrade card so i think you know he's always been able to give you a simple really efficient product uh and like peter said i mean he's never had problem raising money yeah. but do you guys think this would be the same story if this was 2019 oh you god no. No. exactly nope. you know so <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I think this post-pandemic moment, what the pandemic has done, what everything that's going on with consumer practices is definitely a big part of this, right? Yeah, so, it's lifted all boats in fintech. I mean, yes. for the most part, it's really, it really. I think happens. it's crazy though. We're seeing this more often. They raise, and then five months later, they're jumping like in a insane amount. Not only valuation, but I mean, they're just stocking their coffers with cash. It's, it's, that's, I mean, we've probably seen that five or six times in the last two months where someone's raised within six months, maybe they've raised yes. another giant round. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, look, the, that's the big headline, right? Like, even in our portfolio, our five year thesis just got shortened to 18 months. You know, yeah. that's basically what's happening. And I mean, it, it's exciting. But that's what's happening, and and the consumer behavior is now very visible, very understandable uh, on this front than it was before. Yeah, it is. It's uh, very different times that we live in. We don't know when the music's going to stop, but uh, we, we need to make hay <laughs> yeah. while the sun shines. To use exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, I want to talk about the UK because this was this is a really interesting development that Amazon in the UK is banning. UK issued visa cards from its platform. So from January, I think it's January 19th, you will not be able to pay um, with a v with a UK issued visa card. You can, still, you can still you can pay with a foreign issued visa card. You can pay with a visa debit card. It's yeah. not with a visa credit card. And well, not only that, Amazon is paying. They're offering twenty pounds for users who have a who have a visa credit card on file to switch to a different credit card. So it's they really don't want Visa um, to be getting any of this, uh, any of this interchange <laughs> revenue that uh, I'm sure. I mean, they've got to be one of Visa's biggest customers in uh, in the in the UK. And I'm, I'm there. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, they, they keep increasing their prices and, and, and Amazon have called their bluff and said, okay, forget it. We don't, we don't need you. This is something I think we, we talked about a bunch on last week's show too. I mean, the battle 
the payments battle going on right now is to me, I think one of the more fascinating yep. uh, battles because you have like, you know, Apple square, Amazon, you know, they're all kind of trying to create their own payments ecosystems as well that don't rely on Visa, MasterCard. Um, and you have buy now, pay later, which take away uh, the revenue as well. Uh, and so it's like this battle of you had these two dominant <clears throat> rails that most payments occurred on and still occur on. Uh, and then you have this other battle of uh, contactless payments, BMPL, and it just shows that you know right now there's a pretty big battle for uh, not only the interchange revenue but also dropping fees and what ecosystem quote unquote is the best to to kind of stay within. Yeah, and you know we often we often talk about platform power, but it's it's great to see it work in this instance when they're like, hey, this is too expensive for our merchants. You know, you're out. Yeah. And uh, and in fact, right, Visa and Mastercard were going to increase merchant rates last year in this in country. US. Yes, yeah. And the pandemic meant that they had to postpone it. You know, thankfully in, on that front. And I understand that in a couple of other markets, Amazon has also offered gift cards and all sorts of things to switch people over from it. I agree with you, Todd. I think the, what I was thinking about is you have on the credit side the the new BNPL rails. Right. And a lot has been written about it. I think we're understanding how that's supplanting the credit rails. It's mm -hmm. becoming more and more clear. But on the debit side, I think it's it's the open banking. Right. It's mm -hmm. like the freedom from accounts, basically. Right. It's like you can move money out of and into any account if that architecture exists. I think that's that's the evolution of the debit rails. You know, no right. wonder Visa was interested in Plaid. Right. Because that's the evolution of the debit rail. So I think you have this both pieces pressuring the traditional duopoly of Visa and MasterCard. And I think that's a that's very exciting to see how that evolves, because for a long time, it felt like you could never supplant the network effects that these guys had created. It just seemed very yep. difficult. Right. I think that's so really it's yeah, they're getting at it from all sides. I mean, because you got you know, Venmo here. I did, did a deal with Amazon recently. Um, and open banking is really pretty advanced in the UK and you're paying with a bank account is is pretty, and it's more well-established in the UK than it is here. So consumers have, you know, Visa are arguing you're limiting choice. Well, they're limiting, they are, they are limiting choice to some extent, <laughs> but there is so much more choice than Absolutely. there ever was before. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just, and, uh, you know, it's, it's now commonplace here in New York, at least, to see the sign at the register when you walk into a place Three percent more if you pay with a card. Exactly. exactly. So you know, pay with cash, and we'll give it to you for cheaper. Yeah, exactly. uh, and it's you know, I would think that uh, it has an effect where people, a lot more people, are paying with cash than probably you know they were a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, that pushback on the the credit rails has existed in emerging markets. You yep. know, wherever you went in emerging market, you would see that. Yeah. So so this is long in the making. We just didn't have alternate structures and architectures yep. in place right right yeah okay let's move on um i want to talk about opportune who um this week announced that they are purchasing digit uh, digit has been this the popular uh, savings app um that have been around for many years they uh 
they're going to, they're all digital in the process of becoming a neobank. Um, they have 600,000 customers who have saved a collective $7 billion since exception. That's not, that's not too bad. <laughs> Prices around 213 million, which is, seems pretty reasonable for 600,000 customers uh, these days. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, you know, they both use MetaBank, and uh, I think that they. I, I heard on. I read on Twitter earlier this week that uh, Joanne Barefoot is was one of the conduits for this deal. She's uh, on the board, I think, of both companies. So anyway, it's uh, it just looked like another another M and A deal in uh, in the fintech world. Yeah, um, I, I work closely with Joanne, and I, in fact, I was talking to her last night, and and this is at a conference that she hosts, where she connected the two of them, going back a few years. Mm-hmm. She's on the board of Opportune, I don't think on on uh, board of Digit. Okay, and I think this is a super exciting deal, frankly. I think it's a good thing because Opportune is all is sort of seen the white knight of in the lending business, you know, the good guys of business. And and Digit has seen has you know if I don't know if this is a really a deal for the six hundred thousand customers or more for the eight, sort of the semi uh, pre machine learning engine that mm-hmm. Digit has built, you know, and it I think over time it has trained on these customers and 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 sort of the saving numbers are a first proof point of that, and so I think that's what they really acquired here, and it, it it's sort of an evolution of. You know, opportune becoming a truly competitive, solid, all digital player uh, in the market, and I think that's kind of exciting. I, I suspect they will go back. You know, if you remember, they pulled their banking application. Yep. I think they will probably go back now uh, for that uh, next year or or soon. All right, certainly a big win for that that uh, customer segment that uh, opportune serves, um, and you know, I think. They've they've given access to uh, people who um, you know were, did not have access, uh, and so I think this just expands that offering. Um, and you know I think they've they've shown themselves to be one of the uh, better players and for sure um, you know especially on the financial inclusion and wellness side there that's always been their mission. You have other companies that it's more the the talking point. Uh, that's always kind of been there. There, uh, that's been journey. the ethos. Yep. This is how, that's how they see the world, and Digit is the same way. So mm-hmm. I think in that sense, it's like a great coming together. So I, I'm actually very excited about this development. Yeah, somewhat surprised, but very excited. <laughs> yeah, I because Opportune. I mean, I always thought of Opportune as like really focusing on the Hispanic market. That's kind of um, you know where they've where they got their start. But this really broadens it out. Uh, certainly in my in my mind, anyway. Um, how they're doing it but um, anyway let's move on to um, more news from the SEC more bad news for crypto <laughs> BlockFi um, has uh, basically we, we we saw the SEC is investigating looking at whether BlockFi whether their main product their yield account uh, full disclosure I am a customer um, is a security and whether it should be registered um, BlockFi have not been accused of any wrongdoing but the SEC is joining um, several states that are also looking this year at the state of New Jersey um, that, that has been uh, that started over the summer looking at it. Kentucky, Alabama, Vermont are also looking at BlockFi's offering. Um, you know, eventually we're going to have to, they, they just need to rule. Is it a security or is it not a security? Because 
Um, I mean, they're, 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 I feel like BlockFi have been sort of in this regulatory you know, purgatory in some ways because they they, they they don't know it. Everyone's just saying we're investigating, we're investigating, and it, they haven't really had any clarity. So hopefully this will come to a head and there will be clarity eventually. And it also it you know gives this impression that some of these companies are operating outside the bounds when in reality they want the clarity so, so they know exactly what they can and cannot do and right now it's like you know they're they're you know they're eager to to talk to regulators a lot now, you know there's obviously some that um aren't but there's so many that are eager to talk to regulators uh, and they want to work with them and come up with a structure and so they go all right this is it this is what we can offer here's the limit to where we can go and yet it's they're being investigated there's nothing that they've been accused of and so it's like there's all this innuendo going around when in reality it's just let's rule it is yeah. or it isn't well yeah well i think in the in the regulatory culture in the us is let the markets run and then we'll come in right, right? because in the rest of the world it's like here, here's the box i define the box now you play in the box Whereas the U.S. is like, let's let's see what you come up with. What does it look like? And then we'll we'll jump in and look at this. I'm actually, I think this is good news, in the sense in the sense that this is an important layer that has been built because you're now starting to see this next generation set of startups that are saying, hey, how do I get access to these yields? How do I bring these yields to the everyday checking account holder, everyday savings account holder who doesn't want to touch crypto right now? Mm-hmm. Right, they are building on top of these guys, on top of BlockFi and others. So I think getting clarity and and sort of figuring this out is going to unleash that other innovation market that's emerging right now, and that's kind of exciting. Right, right, it is, and I think um, you know the thing that the thing that's crazy is that there's there's so many DeFi projects out there that you can get you can get you can get yield better than you get yield at BlockFi, um, and I, they're all. I mean. The, I mean, BlockFi is a centralized play. They 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 control their their ecosystem centrally. Whereas all these DeFi projects, same product basically, but decentralized. And I feel like the SEC is. I mean, I think I think it's probably it's it's good news in um, for BlockFi if they can get clarity. And I think that's that's what we're looking at. But uh, where does that leave all the DeFi projects? If 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 uh, BlockFi has, uh, has terrified, said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, that's 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 a whole other topic, though. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Um, I want to talk about um, Plaid. They had a new report out uh, called the FinTech Effect. They surveyed two thousand adults in the US and the UK, and they're looking at the impact of FinTech. Now, they define FinTech as any digitally delivered financial service, so it is pretty broad. But they found that. <laughs> Basically, 88% um, of U.S. consumers uh, were using fintech, um, 88% of the entire population. Um, it's up from uh, from 58% just, I think, a couple of years ago, and or last year, actually. 48% of people use it every day. That's 48% of the entire U.S. population using fintech every day. No wonder there's all this money being thrown at at, at the industry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's. It, I think the more interesting number would be in like two years how much that eighty eight percent is, um, you know, holding strong or holding steady. Uh, you know, some of this is pandemic induced, but um, you know, I think the the awareness factor of digital 
you know, delivery of financial services is as high as that we'll probably ever get it in terms of uh, everything being shut down. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon not only fintechs, but banks to keep that momentum going, uh, keep innovating, keep delivering products that are seamless, keep making processes uh, digital uh, and figure out the in-person additive yeah. to that, but not revert back. Well, it's it's reasonable to ask what we are seeing now. Will it stay? Because what's you know what's behind this is this exogenous thing that happened, mm-hmm. the pandemic, right? That's yep. part of the driving force. It wasn't this organic, natural growth. So it's reasonable to say, are we going to snap back to that pre-pandemic world, or is this going to continue? I, I'm quite confident <laughs> we're not going to snap back. And I think there's a little data point in this report that supports that, which is. Boomers showed the highest growth in fintech adoption over the past year at 40%, right? Those, those kinds of things tell you, okay, there's a more structural shift taking place. Mm-hmm. With the millennials and with Gen Z, we know that they are leaning towards these kinds of products and there's strong evidence from on that front. But on the boomer side, it's a switching question. And so I think that's very exciting. By the way, none of this necessarily mean people are financially healthy, right? That's right. Separate. right. This, is, this is the fintech I'm using tech. That doesn't yeah. necessarily mean I'm financially healthy, and that still remains a challenge. But they did say, like, was like, like, how the number was ninety something percent of people appreciate the fact that it saves them time. Yes, so they are. They are doing. They're on the path of exactly. yes, yes, exactly. Anyway, we're almost out of time. So one more story. This is a fun one. Um, I don't know if you've been following, seeing the ads. Crypto.com. They got Matt Damon um, doing ads all the time. It feels like to me. Uh, they are they are taking over the the the, the home of the Los Angeles Lakers um, and Clippers are, and Clippers yes of course and Clippers the Lakers really <laughs> and I think there's actually isn't there a hockey don't they have a hockey team I think as well they have the a hockey team yep. exactly. there's so some Canadian what, team too right or something yes like so oh, yeah. it's not going to be the Staples Center anymore it's going to be the Crypto.com Center or no Crypto.com Stadium I can't remember what they were calling it but. Uh, it's crypto.com something, and it's a it's seven hundred million dollars for twenty years. Makes SoFi's deal look like a bargain. Four hundred million for twenty years at uh, the SoFi Stadium just down the road uh, from the state from the new crypto.com center. Christmas Day, the Lakers always play on Christmas Day. They're now going to be playing in the crypto.com arena. Yeah, you got a crypto named arena in Miami. You also have Lone Depot Park, which is where the Marlins play yep. uh, in Miami. So, I mean, it's I think. The SoFi deal shows that it could certainly pay off when every week they talk about the Super Bowls at SoFi, the Super Bowls at SoFi. And, you know, if the Lakers make the finals, it'll be game one at Crypto.com Arena, game two at Crypto.com Arena. I mean, you know, it it does have an impact. Um, You know, how much does it really help them? I don't know. But awareness wise, it, it I don't think it can do anything but help. Yeah. Well, I, I had no idea who these guys were. I have to say, I was like, who are these guys based in Singapore running a Malta operation? <laughs> Suddenly it's at Staples Center, you know, and um, it makes you wonder who, what they're paying Matt Damon, you know. For, for I'm sure guys. he's not cheap. <laughs> exactly. You know? So, yeah, it's quite, it, it fits the week. It fits, fits the moment, right? It it's, does. Uh, it yeah, really yeah. does. So this is, you know, the future is here. Deal with it. Yep, and we got lots of money. <laughs> I'm sure when they're not around in four years, they'll just change the name to... No, I'm kidding, Crypto.com. <laughs> no, 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 relax. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, we are out of time for this week. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Kabir. Thank you, Todd. Um, and before we go, just one quick announcement. In in less than three weeks now, we are going to be in Miami. We'll be actually doing this show, I think, live from Miami for the Lindet Fintech LATAM, the Latin American um, community is is all going to be converging in in miami uh in person we we, we have we're actually on track for uh for a really great show in person and uh check it out lender.com you and if if you are even moderately interested in the latin american fintech community you should come the hottest market in the world yep indeed okay. thanks Kabir. all right Good to thanks, see you guys see you see you yep.